Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. Has civil unrest in Kazakhstan opened the door for another vector of Russian imperial expansion in the former Soviet space? That is the question in the minds of many Kremlin watchers after widespread protests were followed by an intervention by Russian troops at the request of Kazakh President Kasim Jomar Takayev. The Kazakh uprising is complicated to be sure. It was sparked by a rise in fuel prices, but many observers say the root cause is a power struggle between the current president, Tokayev, and his predecessor, Nursultan Nazarbayev. But coming in the wake of another popular uprising in Belarus in 2020, the Kremlin used to expand its footprint there, and with Russian troops massing on the Ukrainian border, imperial restoration is very much on the minds of Russian officials. The Soviet Union was born 100 years ago this coming December, and it collapsed 30 years ago this past December. So is 2022 the year that Vladimir Putin moves decisively to put it back together again? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the forthcoming book American Kleptocracy. Casey also served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Kazakhstan. Welcome back to The Vertical, Casey. Great to be back, Brian. Great to have you. And also joining us from the beautiful Czech capital of Prague, the city where this podcast was born a decade ago, is my old friend, Merkat Sharapjan, a senior correspondent at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and the former director of RFERL's Kazakh service. Welcome to The Vertical, Merkat. It's great to see you again. It's great to see you too, and thank you for your invitation. Thanks, thanks for accepting the invitation. So there's a lot to unpack here that I want to have you both weigh in on. Let's start with the events in Kazakhstan, and then we'll branch out to look at Russia's broader role in this. How do you both see what happened? Do you see this as a, a spontaneous popular uprising, a power play by Takayev against Nazarbayev, some combination of the two, Russian intrigue? Unpack what has happened. Merkut, I know you've been following this really, really closely um, from Radio Free Europe. How did this unfold? Well, I think it's uh, everything started in Genozen, uh, the uh, protests, and then uh, these protests were hijacked. Well, first they were they were they spread around the country, and then they were hijacked by some forces. Uh, it's very very hard to say which at this point, but it's clear that Russia used this opportunity and tried to take Kazakhstan in its pocket just at once. So this began as basically a legitimate popular uprising over over rising fuel prices. It was hijacked most likely by forces loyal to Nazarbayev, correct? Yes. The thing is, I don't know for sure what happened exactly, but my understanding is something happened to Nazarbayev. I don't know if he he, he probably was very sick or not capable to, you know, to run the country anymore, because even though he stepped down, so-called stepped down in 2019, he was still controlling the country, and Tokayev was his person. And if there was some kind of standoff or tug of war, it was between Tokayev and Nazarbayev's team, his, his people. 
mainly. And Tokayev, in this case, probably was reached by Putin. And I don't know how it happened, but uh, most likely it was a deal between Tokayev and Putin. I'll help you and you help me. And that was kind of a deal there. Yeah, no, that that's certainly what appears to have happened. And it was it was surprising because, as you said, Tokayev was Nazarbayev's guy. Nazarbayev did this kind of Deng Xiaoping move back in 2019, where he stepped down formally as president, but maintained this kind of post as the leader of the nation and on the Security Council, where he controlled the Siliviki. His clan was firmly embedded somewhere or another. And this is a bit, there needs to be some reporting done on this. We really don't know what happened. Was there a falling out between Nazarbayev and Tokayev? Was there a power struggle between their teams? Is Nazarbayev sick? We don't know this. Uh, Kazakhstan's not exactly the most transparent place. Casey, what would you add to that? How did you see this unfold? Yeah, Brian, I mean, the short answer is uh, there are still a thousand questions about just what the heck happened in Kazakhstan, in the capital of Nur Sultan, and obviously in Almaty, as well as in the rest of the country, over just the past two weeks alone. And I know, Brian, you, you led with questioning whether or not this was a popular uprising, or was this something about President Tokayev moving against Nazarbayev, or was it both? I mean, certainly sitting here, looking at, following all the news, speaking to those that are still in Kazakhstan, the, the, the answer seems to be that it was both. I mean, again, Merkhat has far more details and far more insight th than I do, but it's been this bizarre, almost in many ways, unprecedented dynamic that we've seen play out, not just in Kazakhstan, but in the broader region, in the broader post-Soviet space. I know we'll be talking in this conversation some of the incentives for the public protest. I don't, I don't think it's any surprise necessarily that things like rising gas prices spiked this initial round of protests. We don't, again, it's no surprise that the struggling, declining economic fortunes of ordinary Kazakhs who have been watching the elite, the family of Nazarbayev, Nazarbayev himself, year in and year out profit at their expense. In, in always... a country that is oil rich, I might Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that has done at a macroeconomic economic level very well, or at least relatively well for itself. But again, broadly speaking, the economic trends trajectories have followed other regional countries, regional economies, certainly Russia being first and foremost of those, of these declining oil and hydrocarbon rents. So again, these things are always going to reach a breaking point. That just so happened to be with these rising fuel prices that we saw get folks out on the streets. And again, peaceful protesters simply complaining about, simply protesting this economic suffering, the struggle that they have been experiencing year in and year out. And then again, as Merkat laid out, they were co-opted, they were infiltrated. There was some new presence on the ground that took mm -hmm. these protests in a completely new, a completely different yeah. and yeah, completely tragic direction. And again, so, so, so many questions. But what does seem clear is that President Tokayev has made a clear and again, unprecedented move against former President Nazarbayev, you know, El Basi, the leader of the nation, this kind of elder statesman who was very much the power behind the throne. I mean, I'll be frank. I didn't think anything like this was ever going to happen while Nazarbayev was still alive. And, did I. you know, it's I suppose. I don't know. We still haven't seen him. He has issued a statement. His, his spokesperson has issued a statement. We haven't seen him. We haven't seen his oldest daughter, Dariga. There are still so many questions. It's just been such a, a strange and, and historic and momentous and tragic week, two weeks now in uh, in Kazakhstan. And there's been a series of arrests of people part of Nazarbayev's team as well. So Tokayev has taken the opportunity not just to, to seize the reins of power in a very real sense, but also to move against any remnants of Nazarbayev in the elite, correct? 
Yeah, that's exactly correct. Again, I'll turn that to Merkat for more details about it. But what we have seen clearly is Tokayev is not only going after Nazarbayev's allies that remain in government, but also going after Nazarbayev's family himself. Just the other day in one of his national speeches, he specifically targeted one of the kind of monopolistic businesses that one of Nazarbayev's daughter has grown insanely wealthy from. He has not shied away from targeting not only Nazarbayev's allies, but Nazarbayev's family itself. Yeah, which is remarkable. And America, let's let's bring you in on this because I, I mean, you and I, I remember you and I appearing on numerous programs at RFERL talking about Nazarbayev. And I mean, you're very, very familiar with him, probably more familiar than you'd care to be. But you always made the point of saying he was an extremely skillful operator. He was always a very, very skillful operator. This is what, and we're going to talk about Russia more in the second half and Russia's role in this. But I mean, I never, ever suspected Putin to make a move on Kazakhstan while Nazarbayev was alive for several reasons. This is a man who was, he's been ruling Kazakhstan since Soviet times. He was on the Politburo when Putin was a you know measly lieutenant colonel in the KGB. He was a member of the Soviet Politburo and seen as one of the more powerful members of the Soviet Politburo in the latter years of the Soviet Union. What do we think happened here? How was Tokayev able to make a move on, on Nazarbayev and his family as well and, and his clan? How do you read this? Well, everybody was surprised when he attacked Nazarbayev without uh, without uh, naming his name, without mentioning his name. He said during Elbasi, uh, very rich people, even uh, by the international standards, appeared. Also, he said publicly for the first time that it's time to give people of Kazakhstan what they deserve, what they own, what belongs to them. But I have to be very cautious here because Nazarbayev's closest ally, Karim Masimov, who was sacked from the post of the uh, chief of KNB, Committee of National Security, was arrested uh, and it was announced uh, on January 13th that he's suspected of, of uh, preparing activities aiming to uh, forcibly seize power. Along with him, his two deputies were also arrested and, and charged. But... His major deputy, Samad Abish, who is a nephew of Nazarbayev, was not touched. Uh-huh. He was an, first they said he is arrested, but then they dismissed that. Plus, there were some rumors, some reports, preliminary reports saying that Karat Satibaldi, another nephew of Nazarbayev, was also arrested. Then it turned out it was not true. For me, it looks like they found a scapegoat, Karim Mosimov. And the rest of Nazarbayev's family and clan gets in line, basically, in, in, in allies? Uh, what I think, I think there's some negotiations are underway between Nazarbayev's people and Tokayev at this moment. And Tokayev attacked youngest daughter's business, Aliyah Nazarbayeva, but he didn't say anything, in, didn't mention bigger sharks like Timur Kulibayev, his son-in-law, very big sharks who represent uh, closest closest uh, family members and their associates. It looks like Karim Masimov was chosen as a scapegoat by different reasons. First of all, he is not an ethnic Kazakh. He doesn't belong to any blood clans, I would say. He, he's, he's an Uyghur. It's one thing. Another thing is, I'm afraid that he knows too much. Imagine if Karim Masimov manages to get out and start speaking about all things. We know from our sources that it was Karim Masimov who helped open bank accounts for Nazarbayev and his family in Hong Kong and Singapore. He knows all the operations. He was the only person in the history of Kazakhstan who was a prime minister twice. And every time 
uh, he was like when he was moved from the post one post he was uh, given another post and to be a chief of KGB I mean KNB which is uh, the successor of Kazakh KGB it means that he was so loyal to Nazarbayev that he deserved that and now he is kind of out and they this win-win situation for Nazarbayev clan and for for Tokayev to show that he is so even though Tokayev is attacking Nazarbayev's family, he's very cautious. Mm-hmm. Major, major players are not touched. Karim Masimov, well, he was very influential, very, very strong man, but looks like they chose him as a scapegoat, not Samat Abish, who was much more powerful. Nazarbayev's nephew, another nephew, uh, Karatsa Tebaldi, is not touched too. So I have a feeling that they still are negotiating some kind of... Right. Severance. So this, so this looks like a classic uh, Pinedel Socialist, a, a redistribution yes. of property at the at, yes. at, at the national level of a very big country. Well, you want to jump in, Casey? Well, I wanted to actually ask Merka because you, you, you know, Merka, you're exactly right. Masimov, Karim Masimov, has been really one of the titans of the Kazakh political scene for years and years. He was Nazarbayev's right hand man, in certain ways, I suppose, still is for years and years. Obviously, he's not a member of the family, but he, you know, we shouldn't underestimate how important it is, how momentous it is that he was arrested on treason charges. I mean, these aren't just, you know, generic, you know, theft charges, actual treason. And he may well be the, the scapegoat. You know, Mirhad, I, I'm just wondering, because we do have a thousand questions about what happened, why now, what are the forces, what are the players? I mean, do you have a best guess for why this happened? Obviously, we saw the protest in Zhanazan, in Mangastau, in Western Kazakhstan sweep across the country. Was it because the protests are emerging right now? Do you think Nazarbayev is in ill health? Something happened with his family? I mean, do you have a, a best guess for why this happened right now? I think Nazarbayev is not capable. I don't know if he's, I cannot say that he's dead because I cannot prove it. But if Nazarbayev was well, then it would never happen. Maybe he's in coma. Maybe he's had a stroke or something. I don't know. But because of that, his team started this uh, attempts to try to get power from Tokayev. And this whole thing started. I was going to say, Merkant, just, just to jump in. I mean, again, one of the themes of the protest, Brian, not only was these concerns and questions about the broader economic structures in Kazakhstan and obviously how the elite have profited at the suffering from you know ordinary Kazakhs. But again, one of the main choruses, one of the main refrains of the protest was Shalket, get out old man directed yeah. specifically at Nazarbayev. And again, Nazarbayev. even if Nazarbayev is dead, even if he's he's you know comatose or had a stroke, the fact that protesters are willing to center Nazarbayev in their protests, and maybe we, you know folks saw the footage of, I think it was in Taldi Kurgan, one of the statues of Nazarbayev coming down. I mean, it is really such a break with the previous political yeah. era that we're still going through and still so many questions, but boy, what a historic month it's already been in Kazakhstan. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. Not just in Kazakhstan. <laughs> yeah. But this raises, an, you know, the toppling of the statue actually symbolically raises an important question, and that is that the legitimacy of this regime has been effectively a cult of personality around Nursultan Nazarbayev. The, the capital city is named Nursultan, right? So, I mean, this is, and, and now with that removed, how do they continue, how does the Takayev regime continue to legitimize itself, uh, America, or Casey, either of you? Well, I think it will be very hard for Tokayev to legitimize his uh, power. Not only because of that, it's still not clear how many people were killed. Still not clear who shot at the at the demonstrators on the sixth and seventh of uh, January. 
plus his move to invite Russian troops to Kazakhstan. Yep. It's also Kazakhs will never forget this. Right. This, especially in the West, in Southwest, and in the South, where Kazakh-speaking population is uh, is majority. Now he brought and, in two thousand five hundred peacekeepers. My understanding is they're leaving, or are they? Uh, My understanding as well that they've begun the process of finally uh, uh, but, leaving as well. As yeah, Secretary of State Blinken said, when you invite Russians into your house, they don't always leave when you want them to. So. Yeah, but I uh, I followed it. It looks like they they started leaving it reluctantly. Mm, reluctantly, okay, good, because first of all, uh, when uh, Tokayev announced that the troops will start moving out of Kazakhstan in two days, Shoigu said immediately that we will move from Kazakhstan when our mission is accomplished. But already today, Shoigu said that we will leave the country by 19th of January. I think, maybe I'm mistaken, but something made them to change their plans. And that mm. something most likely is China. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's also, that's another, you know, that's, that's the yeah, elephant in the room. Also, a very important thing is the Chinese uh, foreign minister, uh, Wang Yi, uh, announced that Kazakhstan, well, he said, Chinese government is sure that Kazakhstan can deal with internal issues itself. Interesting. That, was a, Interesting. that was a very, very important statement. That looks like a slap down on the Russians from the Chinese. Yeah. American. And also, 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 one more thing. I'm sorry if I'm interrupting no, you. No, go ahead. Also, Erdogan held talks with Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. And they officially were said that they discussed the situation around Uyghurs in Xinjiang. It was very interesting. Because for China, there is not an issue of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Right. China never accepts that there is any issue with Uyghurs and Kazakhs living in, in Xinjiang yeah. and other indigenous people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I I don't know what happened there, but it's very likely that Erdogan and, and Xi Jinping, they were discussing the, situa the situation in Kazakhstan. And uh, as we know that Russia today considers China as its ally against the West, and in this tandem, China is dominating. It's very likely, it's very likely that China said, which has China, which has huge interest in Kazakhstan, huge investments in uh, oil and gas, some companies, uh, some projects in Kazakhstan are fully conducted by Chinese companies. And it looks like something happened, and they reluctantly started withdrawing right. the troops. Yeah. Casey, before I bring you in, I actually wanted to pick up on something Merkat said before this part slips away. You said basically that the the Kazakh speakers in the south of Kazakhstan will never forgive Tokayev for bringing the Russians in. What about the Russian speakers in the north of Kazakhstan? Brian, I can, I can jump in right there. I mean, Brian, to, to your question, that gets back to the question we had a moment earlier. Where is the legitimacy for the Tokayev government going to come from now? Because President Nazarbayev, you know, all of his other kleptocratic dictatorial issues and histories and policies aside, you know, one of the silver linings to his rule, his three-decade rule in Kazakhstan, was the maintenance of, was the strengthening of Kazakhstani and Kazakh sovereignty. Right. If President Nazarbayev had still been in Astana or Nursultan, I don't think it's it's out of the realm of possibility. Russian troops would never have been on the ground. It took a historic turnover event like this to watch all of these years, all these decades of the maintenance maintenance of Kazakh sovereignty just crumble overnight. Mm -hmm. And I think what Mirkat said, Kazakhs, especially those in the South, those in the West, 
Kazakh speakers, ethnic Kazakhs, will never forgive him, will never forgive the regime for that, for crumbling in the face of this pressure from Moscow to have troops come in. There is no coming back from that. The genie is out of the bottle. bottle, And pair that with, again, there's not going to be any wholesale economic or democratizing reforms underneath Tokayev. I, I frankly don't see where the legitimacy comes from. If anything, I see shades of Moscow's intervention in Belarus over the past few yeah, years yeah, yeah. Yes. and the yes. Lukashenko regime. Now, I'm not saying they're the same, and I'm not saying Tokayev is anywhere near as horrific a dictator, a leader as Lukashenko is, but the declining legitimacy, the increasing brittleness of a regime in, again, Moscow's, yeah. you know, the post-Soviet region, et cetera, et cetera, there are similarities, there are similar contours that point in a similar direction of, again, the declining legitimacy that is only going to result in eventually more public protests, potentially more repression, and who knows what comes after that. But I want to also zero in on the Russian-speaking North, because uh, Russia has long had designs on that. And, you know, when you're looking, you know, compare, you compared it to Belarus, Casey, and I do see parallels here. There's also a parallel, at least maybe in Putin's mind, if not in reality, to Ukraine. Because a lot of the, you know, the, the Russian plans in Ukraine seem to be aimed at taking left bank Ukraine, basically taking everything east of the Dnieper. You know, basically the Russians speaking east and south. They're going to be in for a little bit of surprise of the, the, the lack of enthusiasm Russian speakers in eastern, in southern Ukraine have for that. But Merkel, what about northern Kazakhstan? How are the Russian speakers of northern Kazakhstan, are they going to welcome Russian, Russian intervention or not? Uh, they're, they're different. Uh, they're very different. It's not like uh, the first years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Many Russians, uh, Russian-speaking uh, Kazakhstanis, I would say, they grew up there already in their 30s, those who were born uh, after the collapse, uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. Many of them, they don't want it. Some of them, they want it. It's very mixed. But I don't think at this point there will be something like uh, Ukraine 2 variant because it's not necessary. Well, the Ukraine because, 1 variant didn't even work because they... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean Donbass 2. Donbass okay. 2 or Crimea 2. I think why they don't need it because even if they move their troops out of Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan is not going to join any European projects. Of course. Any, uh, any, any NATO, nothing. And that's why they already control control Kazakhstan as a whole. But of course, if Kazakhstan decides to do something like Ukraine did, to do something like to get away from Russian influence or something, to organize Crimea number two in the north, especially in the northeast, northeast is more kind of sensitive in this issue, in this case. Uh, north itself is, there is not, uh, the Russians living there, they just say that we are here okay, our pensions are f- better here and stuff like that. So we're talking about mainly about the Northeast. It's Semipolatinsk, Uskeminogorsk and uh, that area. I think, and may, this is just a hypothesis that I'm, I'm not theological about this or anything, but I'm getting the feeling now that Putin is no longer content, and we're going to drive dive into this in the second half a bit, but we can tease it here. I don't think Putin is any longer content to be um, just kind of controlling these former Soviet republics in this kind of postmodern, you know, way, right? I think that he wants to regather, quote unquote, regather the Russian lands. Casey, you wanted to jump in? Well, there? I was going to say, Brian, Kazakhstan now presents the perfect case study for that theory, right? Because the broader 
ideology that Putin seems to have imbibed on himself, viewing himself as this historic figure, as somebody who's returning Russia from its knees to great power prominence, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he views himself as this figure of historic comfort. But beyond that, what we have seen in Ukraine, what we have seen in Georgia are indications that he also views himself as this so-called gatherer of former Russian lands right. or lands that he and the broader Russian nationalist contingent view as rightfully Russian. I know we'll talk about this in the second half, and I'm, I'm glad we are, because this is going to present the case study, both now and in the coming few years, whether or not Putin does truly view himself as the figure to reconsolidate what yep. he views as the lands that are rightfully Russian. Yeah, and we're, we are going to dive into that in the second half, but I wanted to, before we get into the second half, I want to just throw out one question with the, with the two of you, and that is, was Russia's role here passive or active? In other words, did Russia just see an opportunity and seize it? Or was the role, I mean, and I know we don't know the answer to this question right now, but this just, it's, you know, I don't think this is a coincidence. We're seeing a lot of things happening one after another. We've basically seen, and then again, we'll dive into this in the second half, Russia seize control of Belarus de facto in a very opportunistic move, although I'm not quite sure it was just opportunistic there. We see the power play vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, which is of a different nature because Ukraine's in a very different place than Belarus or Kazakhstan is. And now we see this in Kazakhstan. Do we possibly see a very active role in Russia, not just taking advantage of this, but possibly provoking it? Brian, I'll just, I'll just jump in with a quick response. Again, so many hundreds, thousands of questions right now that we still don't know that we'll be dealing with for the foreseeable future. But I, I will say, I don't think it's any surprise. On the one hand, that President Tokayev appeared to fold as quickly as he mm -hmm. did in calling in CSTO, Collective Security Treaty Organization troops, obviously Russian-led, or the parallel to that, that the CSTO troops were as ready and willing and able mm -hmm. to be deployed as they were. You know, you blink an eye and all of a sudden, they are there. You know, just look how swiftly things on the ground change. That points to a far more active role if it was still behind the scenes. Nonetheless, that Moscow may have played in the broader turmoil, tumult, and turnover in Kazakhstan. America, what do you think? Well, I think Russia was always ready for this opportunity. I think I don't I don't think Russia was uh, organized all this stuff, but uh, it probably came during the process. They uh, they saw how it was developing there. And, uh, you know, the Janozen is such a place where protests are always there. Mm -hmm. They go a little bit down, they go up, they go down and they go up. And then, uh, you know, especially in December when there's anniversary of the uh, deadly uh, violent uh, dispersal of protests in 2011. Mm -hmm. Also, this is the uh, anniversary of 1986, a riot of Kazakh youth uh, known as Jeltoksan. And this is always there. And, uh, you know, they stupidly uh, increased the price and just, uh, you know, and that was used. It was hijacked. And uh, again, uh, Putin used this opportunity. He was ready to jump in uh, when the opportunity uh, yeah. comes. And that's what he did. No, that sounds sounds right to me, because what appeared to be developing is there was a possibility if this if Russia had not intervened. I mean, I think Nazarbayev's people are sufficiently strong to kind of have could create a protracted conflict. So there was a threat of civil war, basically, between Tokayev's people and Nazarbayev's people. And Tokayev said, all right, I'm going to bring the Russians in on my side and tip the scales. And the Russians are more than happy to do that because those things never come without strings attached. 
I'm going to shift gears. That's a good note to shift gears on now into the second half, and we're going to talk about the Russian role in the broader Soviet space in a little bit more detail. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at the broader implications of the Kazakh uprising for the future of the former Soviet space. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the forthcoming book, American Kleptocracy. Casey also served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Kazakhstan. And joining us from the beautiful Czech capital city of Prague, my old home base, where this podcast began its life a decade ago, is my old friend Mirha Shurapshan, a senior correspondent at Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty and the former director of RFRL's Kazakh service. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Nursultan Nazarbayev was the longest serving leader in the former Soviet space. He was a powerful member of the last Soviet Politburo, leader of the Soviet Kazakh Republic, and Kazakhstan's iron-fisted president from 1991 to 2019. His autocratic and kleptocratic style of rule has been seen by many as a model for Putin himself. And the way he left the presidency, turning over power to an allegedly loyal successor while positioning himself as the elder leader of the nation, which is reminiscent of Deng Xiaoping in China, was seen as a potential blueprint for Putin and other autocrats. Casey, Merka, what do you think of the legacy of what just happened in Kazakhstan? Because it seems to have burst a lot of bubbles. I'll jump in there, Brian. I mean, certainly, you know, domestically, his legacy is suddenly it has crumbled on its face. And again, this is something that we didn't think we would see. Most folks didn't think we would see until he he passed away. And even then, he'd probably still be viewed as this broader, you know, elder statesman, father of a nation. Yeah, he had some issues, but on the whole, it was still broad stability, sovereignty in Kazakhstan itself. That is completely out the window now. That legacy of a supposed island of stability and Kazakh sovereignty has now crumbled in the face of what we've seen over the past few weeks. But I do want to say more internationally, transnationally, you know, Nazarbayev has now been revealed to be exactly what those of us working in the broader kind of kleptocratic analysis space have always argued that he is. You know, he is a rapacious dictator, or certainly was for three decades, immiserating local populations for the benefit of himself, his family, and the oligarchs in his circle. Nothing more than self-enrichment for the, for the, for the sake of self-enrichment, using transnational financial flows, using offshore bank accounts, using shell companies elsewhere, enlisting the aid of former Western politicians for hire, willing to whitewash Nazarbayev's image. Obviously, I'm thinking of Tony Blair, but Blair was hardly the only one. You know, Nazarbayev in so many ways created this modern kleptocratic playbook that other dictators in the region follow that, again, those of us working in the space of long recognized. Uh, his defenders would always come back and say, yes, but stability, yes, but sovereignty. 
and now that's not even there. So he has just been revealed as the, uh, you know, the kleptocrat has no clothes, and that's exactly what Nazarbayev Okay, is. but if the kleptocrat has no clothes, does that have implications for the broader Soviet space? Because, as you said, Nazarbayev authored the kleptocratic autocratic playbook that so many other despots, including Vladimir Putin, have followed. Um, he was the trailblazer here, and if his if, if if his legacy is in tatters, what does that mean for this model, if anything? I was going to say I'll jump in because I want I want Murkot to get to this Mur as well. But what it proves is that the Nazarbayev model of putting economics before policy or allowing the entrenchment of a kleptocratic dictatorship, even if the economic uh, broader model is allowing for some kind of successes, you know, it's this broader post-Soviet dictatorial uh, model that we've seen implemented in Russia, in Belarus, certainly in Kazakhstan, obviously in places like Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, it is bound for failure. It is bound to break on the shores of reality. The people, the ordinary Kazakhs could only take so much, just like ordinary Russians, just like ordinary Belarusians, just like ordinary Kyrgyz or Uzbeks or Tajiks, you can only take so much of these rapacious figures and regimes that are whisking hundreds of millions and billions of dollars away, often into the West, in in palatial homes, in private jets, in high-end artwork, it's always going to end in failure. This was always an inevitability that we are just finally seeing on the ground in Kazakhstan. That's the optimistic view. The pessimistic view is that now the mask is off and basically Putin is going to underwrite this militarily effectively. And this is where this regathering of the Russian lands. Where do you fall on this? The optim Casey's optimistic take or my pessimistic take, America? Well, it means that Putin will probably stay away from Nazarbayev's model. He will stay there until his death in the Kremlin. Yep. He understands that successor is a danger, whatever successor it is. Plus, I would say what happened in Kazakhstan, it's not the first time. It's a very Soviet way of living the past. Nazarbayev himself, in 1986, when Kolbin was appointed, he betrayed his own patron, Din Mohamed Kunaev, and it was completely the same scenario. The uh, Kazakh students, Kazakh youth, stood the uh, central square of Almaty for three days. There were negotiations for two days. On the third day, some uh, provocateurs appeared, started attacking police, and that gave an opportunity to Oman to start right. killing and, you know, it was completely the same. And then instead of using the words extremists and international terrorists, which uh, the words which were not familiar to, to the Soviets at that time, because it would be incredible to, to say that foreigners are I I entering uh, the Soviet Union, such words as uh, nationalists uh, who uh, damage the image of the Soviet citizen, uh, alcoholics and drug addicts uh, organized this. And Nazarbayev? Clearly, openly, right. publicly said those were nationalists. They were bad guys. They were they were uh, bad elements who organized this. He, it was the same thing, and he just blamed uh, everything, uh, all the problems on uh, Kunaev. He said that Kunaev uh, created, in, in many years in power, created the situation. Well, that time people couldn't have this amount of money, but he was uh, talking about uh, uh, nepotism and you know. Uh, corruption in terms of uh, distributing positions and stuff, it's the same thing. I mean, uh, remember what happened on the 20th uh, Congress of the CPSU, Communist Party of the Soviet Union, when Stalin was uh, announced a and bad guy, and, and then Khrushchev was announced a bad guy, and it's, it's completely the same thing. Interestingly enough, Nazarbayev then, when uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, 
He said, I led those protesters in 1986. He wrote in his right. book. You know, and uh, we'll see what Tokayev is going to write many years after, when, when everything will, will come down, and we, we don't know what was going to happen. If, if everything crumbles in Russia, of course, all those people who were killed last week in Kazakhstan will be pronounced officially as heroes. And you know what, 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 what's going to happen. Uh, so in this case, I think Putin learned from what happened in Kazakhstan that the idea to become uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, you know, Ayatollah, and put a president who is kind of his puppet, it doesn't work. It's dangerous. That's yeah. what, what's going to happen. I mean, I think Putin had already reached that conclusion. I think he would have, if he was going to make that movie, he was going to do it earlier than now. But I think this kind of drives it home that it kind of vindicates, yeah. at least in Putin's mind, that this was the right way to go. Casey, what did you want, you want yeah, to jump I was going to say, I, I think we just saw any potential for Putin ever peacefully leaving power or handing the reins to the successor. I think we saw that die last week, frankly. I think he has looked as Nazarbayev year in. You know, Nazarbayev was always one of the very few leaders that Putin had any kind of baseline respect for. For. He always looked at him, obviously, in terms of replication of how to actually retain power in Moscow itself. But to see the fact that somebody like Nazarbayev can be toppled in the way that he has by this relatively, you know, anodyne kind of almost empty suit figure like Tokai. I mean, Tokai was never a, an especially threatening figure. He wasn't right. the kind of guy that's going to bang your head against the table. He was very much a bureaucrat for bureaucratic sake. Um, and the fact that somebody like Tokayev can turn against a figure like Nazarbayev is uh, absolutely indication that I think Putin will never, ever leave power peacefully. And then beyond that, what does that mean for the region as a whole, the increasing brittleness, the increasing uh, number of territorial questions, the increasing militarization of both Russians, Russia's borders itself, as well as the neighboring countries, the threats to places like Ukraine, the increasing threats to places like northern Kazakhstan and northeastern Kazakhstan, again, as this increasing nationalistic element comes to the fore, not only in Russia, but in Kazakhstan as well as a potential consolidating factor for a regime either now or in the future. I, it was just a all of the implications in the near-term future for the region are all, you know, to, to, to paraphrase or to, to parrot what you were saying earlier, Brian, absolute reasons for pessimism. In the yeah. long term, you know, that might may change, but certainly in the short term, absolutely. Well, this, this we keep circling back to this same central question, and that is, this, does what just happened in Kazakhstan illustrate what a farce dictatorial stability in the region is, or does it make Russian revanchism more likely? There was a great piece in the New York Times about this today, arguing that Putin's sphere of influence is dependent upon these dictators that are they're presiding over countries where there's a rebellion below the decks, whether we're talking about Takayev in, in Kazakhstan or, or Lukashenko in Belarus. And I don't know if either of you saw it, but Vladislav Surkov had a very interesting article back in November when he effectively said the quiet part out loud. I mean, Surkov's always saying the quiet part out loud. But he basically, in, the, in this article, which is pretty widely commented on in Russia, he argued that the cure for Russia's domestic political troubles is expansion. The cure for this is expansion. And he doesn't, he, he didn't mince words. He wrote, and I'm quoting from Surkov directly now, social, my translation, social entropy is highly toxic. It's not recommended that we work with it at home. It needs to be taken out somewhere far away, exported for disposal in a foreign country. For Russia, constant expansion is not simply an idea, but a genuine existential reality of our historical existence. And then Surkov concluded that in the coming years, quote, Russia will 
receive its share of new lands, as was the case in the era of the Third Rome or the Third International. Russia will expand not because it was good, not because it's bad, but because it is physics. This is Vladislav Zerkov. And Zerkov, um, obviously a prominent uh, uh, spokesperson. Yeah, not hardly, for... hardly, hardly a random commentator, right? Um, and you could it, a lot of people like to dismiss Zerkov as kind of just like a, a troll and you know somebody that likes to say outrageous things for attention. I don't view Zerkov that way. I never have. I think he's a, a good barometer of where, of where things are going. Now he wrote this as Russia was conducting what I consistently have called a soft annexation of Belarus. It's like a frog boiling in water. It's happening, you know, it's going to be over before we know it, but it is clearly happening. It's happening. He, he, said, he wrote this as Russia was massing troops on the Ukrainian border. Um, the security talks between the, the, the West and Russia broke down this week because they were basically kabuki theater. I mean, the West was never going to give Russia what it was demanding, you know, a promise that NATO never enlarged and that NATO pull back all military forces from all the new countries that joined after 97. And now, do you see this as at least in the short term sparking more russian revanchism I mean, they basically got had belarus handed to them and they just got kazakhstan handed to them and they're going to have to fight for ukraine and i i think they're going to lose that fight but that's just me i was going to say one, one of the things about the the sudden instability almost overnight instability in kazakhstan and again getting back to the conversations about northern northeastern kazakhstan I, I don't think anybody thinks or views that there's going to be in the next week or even in the next month or two some kind of revanchist policy or creation of a puppet regime in places like northern kazakhstan but what we suddenly have, have have a sudden relevance of and potential for is again to get back to the conversations about the legitimacy of the regime as that continues to decline there are other elements of legitimacy kazakh officials can to one of those being Kazakh nationalism and the broader creation of Kazakh statehood that Putin is absolutely going to be on the lookout for. Now, I do want to highlight the fact that while Putin is obviously the man in the Kremlin right now, Russian nationalistic claims to northern Kazakhstan go back decades, if not yeah. centuries, right? We have Alexander Solzhenitsyn saying northern uh, Kazakhstan is rightfully Russian. You have Boris Yeltsin in the final days of the Soviet Union in early uh, – late 1991, early 1992 saying we have the, re the right to revise borders in Ukraine and in Kazakhstan. That obviously hasn't happened in the latter yet, but you see the tinder building. You see the potential for it building to say nothing of the – kind of scouring for legitimacy in the Kremlin as their own economics continue to decline. Those elements of revanchism, those elements of irredentism, given the history of claims to northern Kazakhstan already, we have to pay attention to it. We simply can't dismiss it yeah. out of hand uh, like we were uh, able to, uh, to do even just a few months ago. No, in, in a televised appearance not long ago, uh, Nikita Mikhalkov, the film director and, and nationalist, basically argued that the Soviet Union should be put together back together again with three republics, Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. And that sparked a lot of um, like commentary in nationalist circles about what about Kazakhstan? Yeah, what about Kazakhstan? America, why don't you jump in here? How do you, I mean, you talk to your other colleagues around RFERL. How, how do you see this in the broader post-Soviet context in the, in, in this, in this centenary year of the founding of the Soviet Union in 1922? Uh, it's clear that Russia is trying to, well, at least to put former Soviet territories under its control to create some kind of, if not Soviet Union, some kind of uh, new alliance or confederation, whatever you call it. But the example with Kazakhstan showed that 30 years of independence changed many things. Mm. If in Ukraine, uh, 
people who cherish their independence and they're being more European than uh, than uh, former Soviet. Uh, in Kazakhstan, we see that they withdrew the troops. Kazakhstan, thanks to Nazarbayev's whatever uh, kleptocrat he was, thanks to his policies, there's too many interests are there, too many investments are there. There are too many things Nazarbayev made it clear that Kazakhstan has not only economic but political alliances with China, with uh, Turkey, with uh, other places, and it would not be that easy. It's not only the matter of Kazakhstan. If in Ukraine, which is in Europe, close to to European Union, uh, the European Union and the West is trying to stop Russia. Mm. In Central Asia, especially uh, Kazakhstan, there will be other players like China, Turkey, Mm -hmm. and in the Islamic world, which will try to say, hey, what are you doing? These things are not going to work this way. Yeah, no, this would be very ironic if this turned out to be the Ukraine of Russia-China relations. Yeah, but of course, of course, I I completely agree. If something like that happens in future, of course, they uh, create something like Crimea number two in uh, north and northeastern Kazakhstan is a matter of 24 hours. Mm. I I was going to say, Brian, to to that point, don't underestimate Putin's ability, ongoing, continuous ability to drive away neighboring countries, neighboring peoples, even though those oligarchic and obviously dictatorial links remain, certainly Belarus being a key case study, and Ukraine for that matter, and how swiftly that positive or at least relative positive image of the Kremlin can collapse and drive a country into other broader geopolitical or democratic directions and and i would you know put kazakhstan right there you know think back a few years ago in the aftermath of crimea in the aftermath of donbass you know putin was was asked a question at a, at a press conference by a young woman who said you know will kazakhstan face a ukrainian scenario after nazarbayev's departure and putin kind of he didn't respond to that. He just let that question hang. Uh-huh. What he said in response was, oh, you know, President Nazarbayev has been such a wonderful state statesman. He created a country in 1991 because, quote, Kazakhs had never had statehood. Right. This is a shot across the bow. And I don't think it's any surprise that shortly thereafter, the Kazakh government said it was announcing celebrations of the, the 550th anniversary <laughs> of the founding of the Kazakh Khanate. So even though obviously there are still at least relatively warm relations between Astana or Nur Sultan and, and Moscow, don't underestimate the ability for Putin to drive that relationship into the ground in the future. Well, there, there's two processes that are happening simultaneously right now. Putin is pulling certain regimes closer to him. Kazakhstan and Belarus being the most the most uh, blatant examples, but he is losing populations, right? He's losing the hearts and minds of populations. Even Belarus, which has like long been seen as the most pro-Russian of the former Soviet republics, in Belarus you're seeing, I mean, if I can believe public opinion polling that I've been reading, where Belarusians were asked to name the mo- the part of their history that they should draw on to draw inspiration for the current Belarusian state. Most of them say things like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth or the Grand Duchy of Lithuania or the short-lived Republic of Belarus that was barely lasted a couple years after the First World War. Um, very at the bottom of the list is the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. He's losing something that I never thought could happen. The Ukrainians are long gone. I mean, he's, he's lost them and he'll never get them back. And if what Merkat is telling me is right, he's losing Kazakhstan as well. And this is what this tension is going to be. Putin kind of getting control of elites across 
the former Soviet space, but losing populations. And in places where he has neither the elite nor the pop- nor the population like Ukraine, he's relying on the threat of, of military force, no? Yeah, I mean, Brad, to that point, it's very clear that, that Russia, the Kremlin, and Putin are the short-term victors in the ongoing turmoil in Kazakhstan, but that is at the expense of a midterm, long-term solution or increasing in relations or success in maintaining those ties. I mean, it is a sacrifice he has made in Belarus. It's a sacrifice he attempted to make in Ukraine that obviously failed, and a sacrifice he's now making in Kazakhstan, short-term benefit for midterm and long-term loss. And a lot of this, I mean, a lot of this depends on us. It depends on the West. It depends on how we behave going forward. Putin clearly sees an opportunity right now. There's a, the, the West is divided, distracted, you know, angry and sullen. <laughs> and so, he, so Putin in, in, in is having trouble speaking with one voice, although I am pleased with how much the West has spoken with one voice in these security talks that, 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 that just wrapped up and are not going to be resumed, apparently. But a lot of that depends on us. We're bumping up towards the end here. I'm mindful of the clock. America, I want to give the last word to you before we, we wrap it up. Well, uh, what happened in Kazakhstan was unexpected. The way the uh, the system uh, crumbled so fast, so quickly, it was also a very big surprise. Unfortunately, we don't have all the details what happened there, but I'm sure very soon everything will be clear. Plus, I think if Tokayev makes all the reforms he promises, he's going to lose next presidential election if everything will go democratically. If everything will go democratically, and will there be a Russian voice in that next presidential election? Uh, Russia's quite good at interfering in elections. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's something to watch for. Casey, did you want to say anything before we wrap it up? Well, I was just going to say, you know, Brian, I've, I've long argued with others that focus on the kind of world of kleptocracy that Nazarbayev is really one of the, if not the key figures to understanding how modern kleptocracy developed, and then beyond that, how that has uh, affected regimes and broader international transnational relations. You know, I've made that argument for years, and I do think it's worth continuing that argument to see what this always eventually ends up in. I know that's an optimistic take that these regimes are always going to go in this direction, but I do think if we weren't paying attention to the broader story of Nazarbayev's development and trajectory before, we absolutely should be paying attention to it now for so many reasons. Yeah, no, and I, and I argue that the kleptocracy and the imperialism are not unrelated. Kleptocracy is the new communism in a lot of ways, which is an argument I'm making in the in the book I'm working on at, at the moment. All right, well, on that note, we'll wrap it up for today. That's all we have time for. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Ripple Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, has been journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy. Casey also serves as a Peace Corps volunteer in Kazakhstan. And joining us from the beautiful Czech capital city of Prague, my old home base where this podcast was born a decade ago, has been my old friend and colleague Mirkat Shirapjan, a senior correspondent at Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty and the former director of RFERL's Kazakh Service. Gentlemen, thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. 
You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.